Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Keith, if we have not met. And uh, this morning we are in week 45 of our relevant sermon series, where we're going through the entire um, Bible over the course of the year. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And so the theme of the relevant series right now, the, the part of the series we're in, is we're looking at the various letters uh, in the New Testament. And the way we've broken this down is we have picked uh, one letter uh, based per author uh, of the letters in the New Testament. And when it comes to the author of Hebrews, there's some debate as to actually who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, traditionally, it was thought to be Paul, but I think now um, and, and for a long time, there's been a debate as to whether Paul was the author of Hebrews. And there's a couple reasons uh, for that um, as to why people think it was not Paul, but one of Paul's associates. And, and some of the reasons for that are one, the style of the book, uh, it reads differently um, than some of the other, uh, some of uh, Paul's other letters. Uh, and especially if you look at the, uh, when you look at it in the original language, uh, it's a little more eloquent uh, than maybe how Paul wrote. Uh, the second reason is that Paul usually introduces himself uh, when he writes a letter. Uh, this time, their author is not uh, self-identified. And the third and probably the most important reason is there's a line in Hebrews that says the author uh, knew the apostles but did not personally know Jesus. Um, and if you've ever read any of other Paul's letters, Paul really relies on the fact that he had a personal encounter with Jesus uh, as a, a central point in his letter. So that's why a lot of, for the, a lot of reasons um, that people don't really know who uh, wrote the book of Hebrews, but it was probably one of Paul's associates. But even though we don't know who the author is, uh, we do know pretty clearly what the point of Hebrews is. And the point of Hebrews is it answers the age-old question of what does Moses do when he wants a cup of coffee? <laughs> Hebrews it. I had to do this. That's like the worst church joke there is, but I had to figure out a way to slip it in. All right. Seriously, what's the point of Hebrews? Hebrews is written uh, to a Jewish audience. Um, and what Hebrews does is it really kind of assumes a pretty detailed understanding of some of the Old Testament uh, scripture. And it's written um, really to try to explain and to try to connect some dots between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And one of the reasons that I really like the book myself personally is there's this kind of quirky thing that I have. Um, I don't know, maybe it's not quirky. We'll find out if you all do it too. But like when I'm watching a TV show or a movie or something, like I really want to understand what I'm watching. And it, that really kind of comes out like when I'm watching the Star Wars, you know, all the spinoffs and all this stuff is like you have the old movies and you have the kind of old movies and the new movies and then all these other shows. And when I'm sitting there watching Star Wars with my family, it drives my family nuts because I'm on my phone like trying to read the articles about trying to understand like how does this all fit in with the old movie and and all that stuff and and it's wikipedia not wikipedia wikipedia has all these great articles that explain kind of the star wars universe and i'm sitting there explaining it to my kids and my wife's like who who like made this up i'm like i don't know it says on the internet it has to be true here's how all these things uh, connect together and they're like you're not paying attention i'm like no i am paying attention this is how i pay attention is i i want to to see it in depth and the reason that I uh, love the book of Hebrews so much is it kind of does the same thing. Is, you know, if, if you read the New Testament, you know, you see all this stuff about loving your neighbor and all this, and, 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 it, and you get to the Old Testament and you get to like, if you're trying to read the book of, if you're trying to read the Bible over a year, you get Genesis, Exodus, and you get to Leviticus, and it's like, we're talking about sackcloth and boils and clean and unclean. How does this all connect to the New Testament? What Hebrews is trying to do is Hebrews is trying to connect those dots, trying to connect the dots between who Jesus is and some of the things you saw uh, throughout the Old Testament. 
And one of the reasons that, you know, I believe the, what the Bible says is true is it's really cool when you think about it. The Bible is written by 40 different people over 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages. And when you read it front to back, it all fits together so well. And it's crazy when you start to see those connections and connect those dots. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning is trying to connect some dots between Hebrews and some of the Old Testament. And so let's, let's, with, with that, let's pray. God, um, as we look at your word this morning, God, I pray that you just open our hearts and our eyes to what you want us to get out of this message, Lord. Uh, we pray you speak to us uh, this morning and just uh, help us grow closer to you uh, in your word. All these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so a few uh, housekeeping notes before we get into the scriptures. Um, so first off, we're going to be primarily in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and 10 this morning. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture. This is definitely going to be a message you're going to want to open up your Bible or get your phone out and have those passages in front of you as we um, go over them. Secondly, uh, I gave you on this, on your outline, I gave you kind of a chart to help you compare kind of the old, old covenant, new covenant mindset between these things. Um, for the sake of time, I pre-filled in some of these boxes. The blank boxes, we're not, I'm not going to like stop and give you the answers as we go, so just try to kind of fill it in as we go. And at the very end, I'll show you uh, how it all kind of fits together in the chart. The third thing is, um, down at the bottom here, um, you can really go down some rabbit holes when you start looking at some of the stuff we're going to be looking at this morning. And so what I've done is um, a lot of the stuff I'm going to kind of shortcut and talk through kind of briefly. But if you want to see like kind of in depth some of the some of the things about what I'm talking about, I gave you some passages to read through this week and down in the bonus scriptures uh, section if you want to kind of see some more detail about some of these things. And maybe what I think would be a good idea is look, it's Thanksgiving week, Thursday, like nobody wants to watch the Lions, okay? And <laughs> And only crazy people watch the Cowboys, okay? So you're going to have all afternoon where there's nothing to do. Um, so pull this out and just maybe spend some time going through these passages. I think it'll kind of uh, open up some of the things we're talking about um, this morning. Okay. Oh, and the other thing, too. <laughs> so I have this nice brown, small Bible that I like to teach from because it's small. And I left it in my office. And so this morning, I actually found one that was very similar back in the library, so I'm going to be using this this morning. One difference. We fight like a Okay. It's, we're just going to roll with it, all right? It's exactly the same inside, despite what's on the cover. I will say, though, if this is your Bible and you've lost it, this is nice. Like, you ought to come get it after the second service, after I use it uh, then, too. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. And so we see the first covenant here. We're talking about the Mosaic covenant um, that uh, God gave um, when, uh, after they led the people out of Egypt and slavery and God gave the law. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's the first covenant we're talking about here. Verse 2, a tabernacle was set up. In its first ring were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that it budded, and the stone tablets, tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Well, lucky, we can discuss uh, some of these things in detail now. And so the tabernacle was the place that God... Um, like the, the place where the Israelites built so that God could dwell with his people. In Exodus chapter 25, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and he tells Moses, 
Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle on all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so the tabernacle was the place that God could dwell with his people, and he gave the Israelites exacting instructions on how to build this thing. Uh, it had very specific dimensions. It had instructions regarding what materials to use. It had assembly steps to, per, to talk about the precise uh, assembly. Um, I have a picture here just so you can kind of see um, kind of what the tabernacle looks like in a diagram. And then the uh, bottom right corner uh, in Israel, they've actually built a replica of it. Um, so you can kind of see what it would look like uh, today. Um, so first on the outside, there was this courtyard area. And then on the inside, there was a tent called the Tent of Meeting. And the first room of the tabernacle was called the holy place. The holy place was where the priests went in. Only the priests could go in there. And that's where the priests went in and they made their daily sacrifices. That's where the priests did their work. But past the holy place was the most important part of the tabernacle. It was called the most holy place. That room had the Ark of the Covenant and it was separated by a, by a thick curtain called the veil. Now in Exodus uh, 39, 42, uh, it says that the Israelites completed all the work exactly like God had wanted, and that God, the glory of God, uh, filled the tabernacle. So under the old covenant, the most holy place was where God dwelled. We contrast that today when we learn in John 1, it says the word dwells among us. But back then, God dwelled in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And so what does that mean for the Israelites? Well, you remember Moses at one point tells God, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And what does God tell him? You can't see my glory. Nobody can see my face and live. I'll show you my backside, but you cannot see my glory because nobody can see my face and live. And in Leviticus 16:2, God tells Moses, he says, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And so the point here is the most holy place is totally off limits. Nobody can, enter the, nobody can enter the room where they die, not even Moses. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and the sins of the people and command, uh, had committed in ignorance. And so we see this one very, very, very limited exception to the rule is one day a year, one person, the chief priest, could enter the most holy place only for the reason uh, to offer a blood offering to atone for the sins of Israel. That was called the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, we get a really detailed description of the festivities on that day, on the Day of Atonement. And so first, the chief priest and only the chief priest would bathe himself, and he would put on a very specific set of clothes and a very specific method. Uh, then he would take a bull and two goats. He sacrifices the bull for his own sins. Then he draws lots for the two goats. The goat that, draw, that drew the short lot was sacrificed. Then he put two handfuls of finely ground incense on the fire, so the smoke, quote, would conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he would not die. He then sprinkles some of the bull's blood on the altar for himself and sprinkles the goat's blood on the altar seven times for the sins of Israel. And this is my favorite part. They would take the live goat and the chief priest would place his hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess all the sins of Israel onto the head of this goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness to live, which is, by the way, where we get the phrase today, the scapegoat. Okay? And so the chief priest comes back out, sacrifices a ram, takes another bath, changes more back into regular clothes. Like, it is a detailed, exact process. And, I mean, like, if you had to go through it, I mean, I just, I pretty much just read for you what's in there. And, like, I'm sure I messed some of it up because it's so precise and exact about the instructions that they were supposed to do. This task was a huge undertaking. It's not in Scripture, but Jewish tradition says that when the chief priest would enter behind the veil curtain on the Day of Atonement, that he would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he messed up any step of that and died, nobody could go in there and get him. They got to pull him out by the rope. It also says the chief priest would actually go into solitude the week before because they were afraid that they would accidentally touch something or do something that would defile themselves. And they would stay up all night the night before praying to try to make sure their heart was clean before they went behind the veil into the most holy place. So I want to pretend for a second that this is the system that still defined our relationship with God, okay? So we sin. We watch the chief priest go into the tabernacle. He's in there for a while. You know what he's doing. You can't see it, but he's in there. He comes back out and says, your sins are forgiven. But then let's further pretend under that system that you come face to face with God. What is going to be your reaction? I'd be terrified. I would look at all the stuff the chief priest had to do to even go into God's presence and not die, knowing that I'm not the chief priest, I'm not even a priest, I'm not a Levite, I'm certainly not clean, and I certainly didn't follow all his instructions. My reaction is I would be terrified for that. I'd be saying, is it even safe? And there's a reason for that. You think about when Adam and Eve, when they committed the first sin, what does it say they did whenever God came back into the garden to look for them? So they hid. They hid because of the guilt, the shame, the regret. It goes by a lot of different names, but the consequence of our sin is that it drives us away from God. And it's interesting being a parent. I see this play out. It's like my, sometimes my kids will do something wrong, and I, I go to discipline them, yell at them, let's be honest, okay? And like when I go in there, sometimes they go hide from me, right? Sometimes, right? And it's like in that moment, like I love my kids unconditionally. There's nothing that they're going to do that's going to make me love them anymore or any less. I want what's best for them, right? Sometimes that means you have to discipline them, but I want, I want what is best for them. They don't need to hide from me, right? It's not, it's not that, but we see that in the same way that we are with God. And so with that in mind, let's see what the author's take. This is in verse eight, starting in verse eight. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that there was, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration of for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of the creation. He did not enter by the means of blood, by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself as unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? There's something fascinating uh, in these passages to me is that there's no question that the, the sacrifices for our sins atoned for the sins of Israel, right? That was the deal. That was the new co- that was the old covenant deal. God says, you offer these sacrifices, your sins are forgiven. So it addresses the problem of God's perspective of the sinner. But what it cannot address and what it did not address was the perspective of the sinner's perspective of God. It says they're not able, in verse 9, it says they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. However, this new sacrifice that was offered once and for all, this is the sacrifice that has the power to clear our consciences from the acts that lead to death. And why does conscience matter? Because sometimes the last act of forgiveness that needs to happen is we need to forgive ourselves. We hold on to that shame and guilt, and that separates us from God. So chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have all been cleansed once and for all and no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are annual reminder of the sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and the goats to take away the sins. So what does it mean that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come? It means that the, the law was an outline of the fulfillment that came with Jesus. Sometimes you can learn a lot about an object by the shadow, but the shadow is not the object in and of itself. And verse 2 points out that if the sacrifice made you perfect, then you wouldn't need it year after year after year. Because there's a guilt problem. Well, it says it's not that they are guilty, it says they felt guilty. And it really goes to the heart of the question. The bulls and the goats can't take away the sin because they are an annual reminder of that sin. They are an annual reminder of how perfect God is and how imperfect we are. They are an annual reminder of all the steps, the exacting steps that it takes to be in God's presence. They are an annual reminder that we are not perfect and that God is. But then let's skip down to verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, being Jesus, had offered for one, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And you see the contrast here is in, in the old system, it was day after day and year after year and generation after generation. But on the new system, it's once for all. Chapter, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 27 says he sacrificed their sins once for all. Chapter 9, verse 12 says he entered the most holy place once for all. Chapter 10, verse 2 says for worshipers would not have been cleansed once for all. Once for all, not daily, not yearly, not generationally, once. And how is it only once? Because in verse 12 says when this priest, this priest being Jesus, this perfect priest made his one sacrifice, he sacrificed himself 
And then after that, he goes to sit at the right hand of God. This priest was perfect, and this priest offered the perfect sacrifice of his own perfection as the ultimate sacrifice. So verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He says, I will remember no more. Remember the old system, they put the sins on the head of the goat. The goat goes out in the wilderness. The sin's not with them anymore, but it's still there. It's just somewhere else. Under this, it says, the sins are forgotten. And he's quoting Jeremiah uh, 31, by the way, there. And see, you see how it's starting to see how, the, how this all fits together, how these dots connect. Is under the old covenant, the high priest offered a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, and the scapegoat bore the sins and carried them away from people. But under the new covenant with Jesus, the great high priest offered himself as a blood sacrifice and bore those sins, taking them away from the people, and not just once, but forever. Because God says, I will remember them no more. So because of this, the sacrifice for sin is no longer needed. Okay, now, but this leads us to this question, though. But what about God's presence, right? What about the most holy place? What about all the restrictions for entering in God's presence? What about the fear of doing something wrong to be in God's presence, the resulting in you dying? What about all these restrictions about approaching God's throne? Where does that leave us now? Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, clean to, hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Matt always says when you see therefore in scripture, you ask what it's therefore, right? And what this line is therefore is this is describing a major theological pivot between the old covenant and the new covenant. Is now because of what Jesus did, we have confidence that we can enter the most high place because of the blood of Jesus. You and I, we're not Jewish, we're not Levites, we're not priests, we're not chief priests, we didn't go through a whole bunch of rituals, but yet you and I can be in God's presence without fear because of the blood of Jesus, because he opened a new way through the curtain. If you remember the Easter story after Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That barrier literally isn't there anymore. It is gone. We have a new way to enter past that curtain. 11 verse 22, it says, let us draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. I heard somebody say one time, traditional forgiveness says you are forgiven, you may go. But the gospel forgiveness says you are forgiven, you may come. It's totally different. All right, so let's recap the chart just to make sure we got all this. So where does God dwell in the old covenant? It's the most holy place. Who has access? The chief priest. When can access occur? One day a year on the day of atonement. What does access require? Rituals and sacrifices. 
What about sacrifices today? Totally unnecessary. And this is the big point, is how can we approach God in the old system cautiously? That's an understatement, but I tried, I wanted alliteration. I wanted a word that from, you know, started with C, cautiously. Under the new system, it's confidently. And so that may be kind of a little academic and kind of head knowledge about how these things fit together. But there's a really important application here that I don't want us to miss. I love that the word that's used to describe this is confidence. And because confidence describes a state of mind that controls our actions. I want to give you a really good example of how this works. Say I have confidence that this stool will hold me. If I have confidence in this stool, I go sit on it. I don't even think anything of it. I just know that this stool is going to hold my weight. I just sit on it. I don't even think I have to think about it because of my confidence in it. My confidence describes my actions of what I do with this stool. If I don't have the confidence this stool is going to hold me, before I sit at it, I may check it out, make sure all the bolts and everything are good to go. I may give it a little test. When I go to sit in it, I may kind of do a little half weight thing just to check it out first. Okay, we're good. So that is a great illustration of how our faith in Jesus works. And so, you know, we ask the question sometimes you hear in church, the question of, do you believe in Jesus? And I, I never liked that question because I'm always like, what does that even mean? Like, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's not just that you believe he existed. It's not just you believe that he was wise and his teachings matter for our lives and he was a great teacher. It's none of those things. When you say we have, we believe in Jesus, what we're saying is we believe in everything that I've just talked about. We believe that Jesus' sacrifice is enough for us. And because of that, we can enter in God's presence. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, my youth pastor asked me one time, he said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I remember saying, I hope so. He said, no, you don't have to hope. You can know. You can know. And he explained it to me. And at the time, I remember thinking, being a middle schooler, that's, that's what I meant. It's the same thing. That's what I meant. And as I've grown older and studied the scripture, I realized like that's not the same thing. Hope and, and knowing are two totally different things. And so I'll ask the question right now, and I don't want you to overthink it because I just want you to think the first thing that, the first reaction that comes to mind, and I'll ask you this question is if you were to die right now and come face to face with God, what would be your reaction? What would be your reaction? Would you be fearful of God? Would you be afraid of God? Would you be thinking, uh-oh? Or would you think, because of what Jesus did, I have confidence that I can stand to be in God's presence right now, and I have nothing to fear? Because our confidence points to what we believe. And so if this morning, if your reaction was anything other than that confidence that we've talked about this morning, my encouragement to you is maybe that's time when you accept that full assurance of the faith that you can be in God's presence without fear, not because of anything you've done or anything you have not done, but because of what Jesus did once and for all from here to eternity. And that's incredible to think about. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the tabernacle. If the tabernacle was here today, and it's not, but if it was, we could walk right past that curtain and be in the most holy place without fear. That is incredible to think about when you when you read the comparison of how it worked on the Old Testament and how it works for us today, that is incredible. But you know what's even more incredible is that's also 
our future. That's our eternity is to be in the exact same thing. We can be in God's presence without fear. Not because of rituals, not because of the blood of goats or bulls or because of we use the right incense or because we're wearing the right clothing or anything like that. We can be in God's presence because of what Jesus did once and for all for us. Only grace, the full assurance of faith, and the confidence that we can be in God's presence. And so this morning, if when I ask that question, if, if, if your action was anything other than I confidently believe that I could be in God's presence without fear, if your action was anything other than that, my encouragement to you this morning is to accept that and know that you can have that confidence. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I'm sure Matt would too. Um, come up and talk to us if you want to know more about that. Um, but with that, that's our message this morning. I hope you can see how some of those thoughts connect between Hebrews, the New Testament, the Old Testament. Let's pray. God, we know we're sinners, Lord. Uh, we know that we have fallen short of what you want for our lives, God. But even with that, Lord, we know that despite our shortcomings, that you love us fully and unconditionally, and that you see us as blameless, and you see us as righteous, and you see us as holy, not because of that is who we are, but because of what Jesus did for us this morning, God. I pray this morning that we can have full assurance of faith and have confidence in that, Lord, and that we know that we can be in your presence today, tomorrow, for eternity, without fear, because of what you've given us, that new way through the curtain, God, through the veil. Lord, I pray you just put that on our hearts this morning um, to just help us see that and apply it to our lives, uh, maybe even for the first time today, God. I ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.